You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. Okay, today we're continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 for those of you keeping track at home. Pastor John's joining me in the studio. John, today we're talking about the time when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he gets rejected, and then he sends his disciples out after that, and and he talks to them about what they should do when they get rejected. So that's where we're going today. And I thought maybe a good question to start with, to to get our listeners thinking along the these lines, is this question. Have you ever felt rejected? You know, when I think of that, John, I think of grade school you know, playing dodgeball out on the playground and you're picking teams and you come down to those last two losers who, who, who like people, the, the, the captain's like, okay, well, I guess I'll take that guy. I don't even know his name. I'll take what's his face, right? So if you've ever been that last person picked, you've probably felt pretty rejected. John, I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any stories from your childhood days that just make you cringe? I certainly do. And I imagine when you ask that question, if, if we have one of those stories, like it came to mind immediately, we all have one of those. <laughs> so mine wasn't dodgeball. Mine was square dancing at the little elementary school I went to. There was a time in the spring every year in PE where we would spend two weeks learning how to square dance. And so as, as a fifth grader, your, your big job was to pick a partner for the square dance. And I remember asking this young girl if she would be my partner. And she looked at me like I had the plague and said, no, thank you. So I, and I, I'm, I'm 49 years old. That was what, like 40 years ago. And I still remember it as clear as, as if it was yesterday. Well, and I'm sure our listeners are feeling the same way. Like, oh my gosh, I have just the story in mind. And so with that story... At the front of your mind, let's go to our text, Mark chapter 6, verses. let's start with verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. So if you joined us last week, we we saw the story where Jesus heals these two two daughters, right? He he, he heals this woman um, with this issue of blood on the way to heal Jairus' daughter. So he's coming off this high. His disciples are coming off this high incredible high of seeing the power, the miraculous power of Jesus, and that's really the backdrop for this. He gets back to Nazareth, and in verse 2 it says, the next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And here's what they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And then verse 3, and then they scoffed. So pay attention to that. First they were amazed, and right away the next verse they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. John, there's a lot to unpack right here. Why don't you help us out? Jesus is returning to his hometown. This this should have been like the ticker tape parade, right, with all the confetti and all the banners. His fame had spread all throughout the region. We've seen that in multiple passages in Mark about how people have come from all over, and now now he's coming home, and he's coming back to Nazareth. Nazareth is about 20 miles west of Capernaum, so the healings you just mentioned, Brian, you know, last week that we looked at were in Capernaum, and that's where many of the events that we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark up to this point have happened, is in Capernaum or in the region around it. 
Nazareth is, is a much smaller town. It's a smaller village. It had the reputation of being kind of a backroads town. Maybe a town comes to the mind of our listeners when we say that. You know, the town that you make fun of that's uh, the next town over. Even one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, when he was originally told about Jesus of Nazareth, asked, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So it's just one of those kind of little hick towns is what we would call it where I grew up, where everybody knows everybody, everybody knows your business, everybody knows if you get home late, you know, (laughs) on Friday night. And so no doubt the news of Jesus' miracles and his teachings have made their way back to Nazareth. And so in a lot of ways, this is like the the small-town kid who goes off to the big city and makes it big in maybe the entertainment industry or athletics or politics, and now they're coming back home to their roots. And so I can only imagine the anticipation that was surrounding his return, but also I would imagine there was a fair amount of skepticism, right? We... We tend to think when someone goes off and makes it big and they come back, we remember all their faults. We remember all their flaws. And I think that's kind of what happened when Jesus came back to Nazareth. When I think about uh, this particular story, maybe, maybe you, you think about some famous people um, who hail from small towns. Abraham Lincoln's the first guy to come to mind. He, he's from Hodgenville, Kentucky. Now, I'm an Illinois boy, so I, I claim... Illinois for him, but originally he was from just this tiny town in Kentucky. Or Larry Bird, one of my favorite um, town names. He's from French Lick, Indiana, just a tiny little town. It just seems perfect for someone like Larry Bird. Or I don't know, maybe to get a little bit more current, Taylor Swift. She's from West Reading, Pennsylvania, which is just a tiny town. So if you're from any one of those towns, like you would feel great pride that those people are from your hometown. And yet, that's not what we see in the story, is it, John? These people don't feel pride. In fact, at first they're amazed, verse 2, but, but then they essentially start mocking him. They, they start, and help us understand this for some of our readers, that they might not fully grasp what they're talking about when, when they talk about that he's a carpenter's son and that he's the son of Mary. So walk us through some of that. Well, first off, when Jesus left Nazareth, he wasn't a rabbi. Uh, it doesn't even seem that he was training under a rabbi. He was a carpenter. And, and in that time and in that culture, for you to become a rabbi, it was very important which, which school, so to speak, you trained in, which rabbi you know, brought you up and, and taught you the ropes. And so Jesus didn't have any of that. He had no pedigree. And I would imagine there was also jealousy. Think of the religious leaders in this synagogue in Nazareth who had spent their whole life studying the scriptures, who had likely, you know, been taught underneath a rabbi, and now this this guy with no pedigree is making a name for himself all over the region, and people are flocking to him, and so I'm sure there was some jealousy. And in Mark's version, in, in typical Mark fashion, he just gets right into the action. He doesn't really get into detail about what Jesus taught in the synagogue that Sunday. And just notice for our listeners that we, we've talked about this a couple of times in this series, that yes, Jesus was a miracle worker. He did a lot of amazing things, but Jesus primarily was a teacher. You know, every time he went into a town, he was in the synagogue, he was teaching, and we see that he did that when he came back to Nazareth. 
And in Luke's version in chapter 4, he kind of talks about the passage that Jesus read from and, and some statements Jesus made about that passage being fulfilled in front of everyone on that, on that uh, particular day. And people are just blown away. They're, they're, they're wondering, where in the world did this guy get all this wisdom? They were amazed and astonished at his teaching. And then that's when they begin to, to be offended at him. They begin to scoff and they say, isn't this the carpenter? Again, that, that would have been an insult. Not that carpentry was looked upon as dishonorable, but they're pointing out that he had no formal training. They're saying, hey, he's not a rabbi, he's a carpenter. And then the next thing they say is they call him the son of Mary. Now, we, we wouldn't think anything of that. You know, if someone called me the son of Phyllis, that wouldn't really be an insult. But in that culture, in that time, it was contrary to Jewish custom to refer to a man as the son of his mother. They would always call them the son of their father, so it should have been the son of Joseph, even though Mary you know, was a widow. Now, this could be an accusation that Jesus was an illegitimate child. You know, that rumor had circulated in that small town of Nazareth. If you think back to the birth story of Jesus, Mary and Joseph weren't married when she conceived from the Holy Spirit. So I'm sure that's something that Jesus and Mary and Joseph had dealt with when he was a child. And we also see a reference to Jesus' brothers and sisters in the passage. Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. Mary didn't remain a virgin after the birth of Jesus. And it's interesting to me, Brian, that, that all of these people in Nazareth, or at least the majority of them that the passage would say, is they have all these preconceived notions about who Jesus is. Because of their familiarity with him and his family when he grew up in Nazareth, these preconceived ideas cause them to be offended and they refuse to believe in him. You know, I think that's important too. That, that, was a, that was a choice they made. They chose not to believe in him. They refused to believe in him in spite of the evidence and in spite of all the miracles that he had performed. And it, it just reminds me that we have to come to Jesus on his terms, not on our terms. He gets the right to declare who he is and what he's about, I don't get to bring those preconceived notions to the table. Yeah, that's really what we've been exploring for the last several months as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark is, you know, we, we've been journeying along with Mark, the author, and really with the disciples. And all along the way, the disciples are understanding just a little more who Jesus really is. It's like their eyes are opening up to who Jesus is. And this is stark contrast because the, the people in Jesus's hometown didn't get that front row seat. So they have probably some other preconceived notions. And now Jesus comes back to, to you know, comes back home for a, for a little bit here for a week or two. And he gets rejected there because, because they view him a little bit differently. It makes me think of some of our listeners today. And that really, this really is my challenge for listeners is what are some of those things in your mind that need to be challenged. Some of those ideas about who Jesus is from maybe from either your upbringing, how you were raised, maybe you have some notions, some ideas about Jesus that are wrong, or maybe just from the way culture talks about Jesus now or followers of Jesus now. I would challenge you to put it all on the table because we've said this before in this series, John, the, the most important thing about you, this is for everybody, the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. And the reason for that is because 
what you believe about, according to the Bible, what you believe about Jesus is the only thing that will impact your eternity. If you believe that he is God, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, if you put your faith and trust in him, the Bible says you'll be saved. That's the only way to salvation. And if you reject him, which is what we're talking about today, if you reject him, then you will die in your sins. Now that might sound really harsh and and uh, not very modern, but it's the truth of the Bible. And so Colossians 1, 15 and 16, we can put this in contrast, in stark contrast to what the the Nazarites were saying about Jesus. Here's what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He's supreme over all creation. He's not just the son of Mary. He's not just a carpenter. For through him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. That's the picture of Jesus uh, that we should be developing as we read scripture. Yeah, one of Jesus's names is the King of Kings. And we see that just so clearly in this Colossians passage that Jesus has all power and authority. And so when we come to him, we have to submit to that power and authority. We have to submit to his rule in our life. We talked last week about... um, a couple weeks ago, excuse me, about lines maybe that we've made that that we've asked Jesus not to cross. And that's really not an option when we come to Jesus. When we make him the Lord of our life, Lord means something, right? Lord means that he has the authority. Now, he, he has that authority anyway, but as believers, we voluntarily ask him to exert that authority over our life. That picture of a bond servant in the New Testament where we willingly say we want to become a slave to you because you are good and because we can trust your care for us. Yeah, so let's get back to the text because here's what happens. So the the first few verses we see that we see the attitude of the townspeople of Jesus in Jesus's hometown, but he, it doesn't end there because that there's an implication to that now. Verse 4 it says this, Jesus told them a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives, and his own family. We talked a few weeks back about even Jesus's family members maybe had some preconceived notions and were having a hard time wrapping their mind around who Jesus was. And it says in verse 5, and because of their unbelief, and this is pretty shocking actually, because if you contrast this verse with everything we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, it says because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them, except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Again, that's kind of a it's a rarity in Scripture to see that Jesus couldn't do something. But that's what it says. It says, because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them. And then verse 6, it says, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Yeah, think of how this had to make Jesus feel. I mean, Jesus was fully human, right? He was fully God, but also fully man. Jesus has had these throngs of people. I mean, literally, he couldn't go anywhere without crowds following him. He couldn't eat. Uh, Talks about how, you know, you mentioned that his family thought he was crazy because he was living this lifestyle where he was just running so hard and serving so many people and doing so many miracles. They had come to see him from as far away as Tyre and Sidon, and yet here he is back in his own hometown, and they didn't honor him. They didn't accept him. And that rejection 
had to have a deeper sting, I think, in some ways than any of the other towns where he might have been rejected. And so for our listeners out there today, if, if you feel rejected, if you feel like no one gets you, I want you to know that Jesus knows how you feel. He's been there. He's experienced that. You know, one of the most encouraging passages to me in the Bible is in Hebrews where it talks about how we have a great high priest who's experienced all these pains, all the trials, all the temptations that you and I have experienced. Jesus gets us. You know, I know, in fact, I remember that's an advertising campaign that kind of went around during the Super Bowl that Jesus gets us. But it's true. Jesus understands what you're going through. It strikes me, even as we read this, John, that this is the passage that we probably can relate to more than anything we've read so far in the Gospel of Mark. Because, especially for American Christians, I think there's this American Christianity that says this, you know, we're his, we're Jesus's favorites. This is his, you know, this is the, the, the promised land. This is the, this is the place where Jesus is. But I, I think if you, if you consider the faith of the nation right now, sort of the, if you take the spiritual temperature of the nation, I think it's, we, it's more like what we're reading here in Mark 6 than what we've read so far in the first five chapters. There, there's this, there's this familiar familiarity in the air about who Jesus is, but it but we're reject. It's almost like we're rejecting what he really can do for us, and 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 I think what verse six is is kind of a condemnation, not just of the people of Nazareth, but really even a lot of maybe listeners today, American Christians. It says that he was amazed at their unbelief. I think that that probably is how Jesus feels about. <laughs> not just the world, but even American Christianity is just, he's probably a little bit amazed at our unbelief that we've, we've tried to fashion Jesus into our own image. We've tried, you know, we, we look think of prosperity gospel and things like that. We're, we're just, we're, we're, we want to see Jesus's miracles. We're, we're kind of like consumer Christians, but really when the rubber hits the road, we look at Jesus with probably some glaring um, misconceptions. Yeah, the NLT says he was amazed at their unbelief. I think it's the ESV that says he marveled at their unbelief. And when we read the New Testament, there's there's two things that cause Jesus to marvel. So he, he marvels at the faith of the, the Roman soldier who says, you don't even have to come into my home to heal me. I'm not worthy. He marvels at the faith of that Gentile. And then here he marvels at the unbelief. He marvels at the lack of faith of the Jewish people in Nazareth. Can you imagine how monstrous of a sin unbelief must be to make it cause Jesus to marvel? (laughs) So for our listeners today, I, I would just encourage you to kind of take a look inside your own faith and and ask yourself, like, what in your life would cause Jesus to marvel? Would Jesus marvel at your faith, or would he marvel at your unbelief? It, it's so illogical for us to not have faith in Jesus. It's so unfounded because God has been so faithful that it causes him to marvel. That really struck me as I was reading that passage this week. You know, in, in Luke's version, Jesus says, hey, you will undoubtedly quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself, do miracles here in your hometown like you did in Capernaum. 
So all of the, the villagers in Nazareth, they wanted to see miracles, but they didn't want to see them because they already believed Jesus could do them. They wanted to see them because if he didn't, then they weren't going to believe in him. And so it was because of their unbelief, Jesus performed very few miracles there. Let's call this only if faith. Verse, and this is in contrast to genuine faith, true faith. Only if, only if faith is faith that says, I'll, we come to Jesus and we say, I'm putting you to the test, Jesus. I'll follow you. I'll give you my allegiance. I'll become a Christian only if you do X, Y, or Z for me. And again, that might sound like faith, but that's, that's so different than the faith that we've seen of all these other people so far who have interacted with Jesus. They come to Jesus like, yeah, they're still seeking a miracle. You know, last week's story, the, the father who was desperate because of his daughter or the woman who was desperate because of her issue of, of bleeding for 12 years. So these are people who came to Jesus, but I would say they came to Jesus with true faith. Yes, they're begging for healing, and he gives them healing, as we saw last week. But they weren't, they weren't saying, hey, I'm going to follow you only if you do this for me. In fact, we saw you know, this in the week before that, we saw this demon-possessed guy who gets healed. And, and, and at the end of the story, after the demons were cast out, he, he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus, does, Jesus tells him, no, you can't. You can't follow me. It's really the only, in that story, if you remember, it was the only time that Jesus said no in that story. He granted the request of the demons. He granted the request of the herdsmen when they said, please leave our town. But now this guy that gets healed, he says, I want to come with you. And Jesus says no. And, and this is an example of true faith because this guy went away and, and shared the, the good news. He shared the story of what Jesus had done for him with the people, even though he was kind of rejected by Jesus. Jesus said, no, you can't come with me. Only if faith would have said, well, then then I don't want to follow you then if you don't let me come with you in the boat and the other disciples and be your closest follower. And so this is a good question for our listeners to say, what, which one is more characteristic of your faith? Is your faith only if faith? I'm going to put Jesus to the test. If he doesn't pass my test, I'm not going to follow him. Or is it genuine faith? Yeah, sometimes Jesus in his mercy will accept at the beginning, only of faith, but we can't stay there. Like I noticed you know, Thomas, right? Think of doubting Thomas when he says, hey, look, the only way, this is what you're talking about, Brian, only of faith, the only way I'm going to believe is if I get to touch the wounds in his hands and stick my hand in his side. Well, Jesus mm -hmm. in his mercy allows Thomas to do that, but Thomas didn't stay there. Thomas went from that only if faith as he approached Jesus to true faith. Not. I'm not saying that Jesus always grants that only if wish, but I, I, I know a young man that I've been mentoring who is an atheist just three years ago, and, and he got to this point where life was just meaningless, and, you know, he, he cried out to God, God, if you're real, you know, show me, show me that you're real, and he had this pretty crazy supernatural experience. I won't get into all the details on this call, but again, God in his mercy allowed that only if faith to bring him into a relationship, but that has grown to true faith now. Like now this young man, even if God doesn't grant, you know, his prayer request, even if God has a different path than what he wants, he's, he's going to follow God. He's going to be obedient. And I've, I've seen him demonstrate that in his life. Yeah. To me, the difference really, John, is the person who is saying, I, I'm in the driver's seat and I get to determine, um, I get to determine, determine who Jesus is. I get to sort of draw the line in the sand. 
Like you can't cross this line. If you cross this line, I'm going to reject you. There's a difference between that and the person who comes and says, I, I still, it's because Jesus doesn't call us to blind faith. The Bible doesn't call us to blind faith. That's not what we're talking. True faith isn't blind faith. It's just faith that says, Jesus, I'm going to come to you and I'm willing to lay aside my preconceived notions about who you are and what you're willing to do for me. Yeah, because back to our, back to our, you know, Colossians verse, right? He is Lord. He has the authority and he's good. You know, I, I said just in a sermon last week, the greatness of God would be absolutely terrifying if it weren't for the goodness of God. <laughs> so we, we can trust God because he's good. He wants the best for us. And, and maybe some of our listeners are going, you know, well, I, I've never experienced miracles in my life either. I've, I've, I've never seen God do anything amazing or I've never, you know, I've never had any of those kind of experiences. Well, I guess my question would be, is it, is it because of your unbelief? Because clearly Jesus was limited in the miracles he could perform in Capernaum because of their doubt, because of their unbelief. So do you doubt that God can work miracles in your life? Have you ever stepped out in faith when God has asked you to do something? Have you ever honored him when it put you at risk relationally, financially, or even physically? Because if we don't ever step out in faith and we don't give God opportunities to show up in miraculous ways... You know, there, there are a lot of ways I've seen this manifest in my life. Maybe one of the most is, is just God's financial provision for me and my family over the years. We've always tried to honor God in, in the way we've handled our money. And, and Brian, I, I literally couldn't count how many times God has done something amazing to provide for us, whether that's uh, before I went into ministry, I was in sales and recruiting. And I remember on a couple of occasions, I got commission checks for things that I had done two and three years prior to that, that had gotten hung up in the weeds. And just when we needed the money, this check would come in out of nowhere. Uh, I remember getting a refund check from my cell phone provider because they'd been overcharging me for three years. And the amount of that check was within like $4 of what we needed to make ends meet that month. And so I have seen God do all these amazing, miraculous things in my life because we've been willing to step out in faith, and it, it's just so cool. That's such, such a great contrast to the person who says, I'm only going to follow you, Jesus, if you bless me financially, right? And, and so that's what we're saying is just to challenge people, how do you see Jesus? You know, where, where have you rejected Jesus or at what point will you reject Jesus if he doesn't measure up to your expectations? And that's what we're seeing here in these first six verses. And John, we could stop right here. You know, we, we were tempted to say, well, why don't we just, why don't we just stop in these first six verses? There's, a, there's plenty here. It's a nice little theme about rejecting Jesus. But we're going to continue. We're only halfway through the text because what Jesus does next kind of adds to this theme of rejecting Jesus, because it says in verse 7, it says that Jesus then, after all this, he called his 12 disciples together, and then he began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. And here's what he said, verse 8. He said, take nothing for your journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. And then verse 9, he allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. But he says this in verse 10, wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. Verse 11, here it is. But if 
any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you. Does that sound familiar? It's what Jesus had just experienced right before this. If any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people to their fate. John, these are intense instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. Walk us through some of this. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. The first thing that I notice is when he sent them, he sent them with authority. As believers, we've been sent, right? The, the Great Commission. So when we are sent, we're sent with authority. And then he, he talks about how they can't take anything with them for the journey except a walking stick. There was, there was a rule that many Jewish rabbis had that you couldn't enter the temple area with a staff, shoes, a money bag, anything that might make it look like you were going to be engaged in any other business in the service of the Lord. And so here Jesus is sending the disciples out and they're engaging in such holy work they couldn't give the impression that they had any other motive. And then also by traveling light, they were going to be dependent upon God for his provision. Each day would be a reminder that God had met their needs. And then, as you said, Brian, their, their job wasn't to change the hearts of the people. Only God can soften someone's heart. Their job was to preach a message of repentance. Their job was to, to sow seeds, We've talked a lot about the parables of sowing the seed, and they weren't responsible for what happened with the seed. They were just responsible to sow it. Uh, and they weren't to, to kind of stay in that town and keep beating a dead horse. And then we might miss something that, that's got a little cultural relevance here, this idea of shaking the dust off their feet as they left. So that's something that a Jewish person would do as they went through a Gentile city. It was kind of a way of saying, hey, look, I don't even want the dust of this Gentile city to be on me. I shake it off. So imagine the insult that would have been to the Jewish listeners in that town. It was like the disciples were saying, if you don't believe this message, you're like a Gentile. You don't have part in the family of God if you don't believe this message. Something I just keep coming back to, I think early on in ministry, John, and maybe you felt the same way, I, I felt this incredible responsibility to um, to make people follow Jesus, to make sure that they understood this wonderful message, this invitation from Jesus, to make sure that they understood the real Jesus, that they came to the real Jesus on his terms, not on their terms, all these things that we've been talking about today. And then I read these passages where first, first Jesus gets rejected by his hometown and to see his response he, his response is essentially what he's telling his disciples to do. He doesn't call down fire from heaven on his hometown. He could have done that. Um, he doesn't, I mean, I'm sure there are several things he could have done to force some things. He could have performed more miracles to try to change their minds. He doesn't. He just performed a few miracles, presumably because there were at least a few people in his hometown who were desperate enough to have genuine faith. He doesn't force the issue. Revival doesn't start up in his hometown. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, essentially he says, hey, if it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. And, and you're not going to be able to change anyone's minds any more than I am. Well, I know we've, we've both got stories, I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, of, of sharing the gospel, sowing that seed, and people just don't receive it, they reject it. And instead of doing what Jesus told us to do, 
we we keep at it. You know, we 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 start to argue, we start to get frustrated, we start to to really, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself. Then I start to feel this pressure, and then it becomes almost a pride thing. It almost becomes, uh, I want to show you that I'm right more than I care about, you know, your eternity. Man, that's just a bad place for us to get. So again, guys, we're, our, our job is to sow the seed. Our job is to go out and, and preach this message of the good news. And, and back to the demon-possessed man who was healed a couple of weeks ago, to just tell people everything that God has done for us and how merciful he's been. And then we got to let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. You know, he's got to soften that heart. He's got to remove those scales from their eyes. And he's got to, to condition that soil so that the seed can begin to grow. Yeah, and maybe a good way to end today's episode, John, is just for people who, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking to believers, to Christians, encouraging them that if you get rejected, don't take it personally, all these things. But maybe we should end by talking to the listener who maybe is on the fence, someone who maybe is thinking, okay, well, what if I want to receive the real Jesus? What if I want to respond in genuine faith, not only if faith? These last two verses are for you. Verse 12, it says, so the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with oil. But verse 12 says, the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And this is this, just this simple, you know, response for the person who is ready to receive Jesus on his terms, not on their own terms. So John, why don't we close this episode with just some instructions for the person who says, I want to do that. I I don't want to be like the people of Nazareth who reject Jesus. I want to accept Jesus. How do I do that? What does it mean to repent of my sins and turn to God? Walk us through that, John. Yes, this idea of repent starts with a changing of the mind. In the New Testament, that's the word that's most often used, this word metanoia. So it means to change your mind. It means to see things the way God sees it. And then when we do that, we turn and go the other way. That's the turn to God part. So we, we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I, I see it the way you see it. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I've gone my own way instead of going your way. I've, I've trusted in my own thoughts, op- opinions, and feelings instead of trusting in what you say is true. And I'm sorry for that. Like I'm, I'm broken over that, and, and I want to change that. And then, and then we trust that what Jesus did on the cross is enough. It's not, it's not, I repent, and so now I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to do better, and I'm going to be worthy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I see that now, I repent of that. God, I want to go your way, and I trust that Jesus was enough. I trust that what Jesus did on the cross, that's what covered my sins, that's what made a way for me to have a relationship with God. And the beautiful thing about, about when we do that, if you're listening, is that, that God says he comes in and he makes us a new creation and that he gives us a heart that's soft and responsive, a heart that wants to follow him. We're not going to be perfect. We're still going to have hang-ups and some habits that we'll have to deal with. But at, at the very core of us, God says we're a new creation. 
and we're no longer an enemy of God, which that may be shocking to some of our listeners that if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, God, God actually says you're an enemy of his. But we go from being an enemy of God to a son or daughter of God. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. We talk about this in lesson six of our flagship series called The Pursuit. You can find that at pursuegod.org forward slash go. It's a 12-part series that explains how to become a follower of Jesus, a genuine true follower of Jesus. And so much of that is about placing your faith in Jesus, genuinely placing your faith in Jesus. In fact, these words that we see in Mark 5, we see them also in Acts chapter 2. It says in verse 38, Peter, after Peter preaches his first sermon, he says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Exactly the same thing that Jesus is saying here in the gospel of Mark. And and. In Romans 10, 9, the Apostle Paul says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you're listening to this today and you've, you've just sensed in your spirit that you, you're ready to respond to the real Jesus, you're ready to lay aside your preconceived notions, you're ready to stop rejecting the Jesus of the Bible, then I want to invite you to pray a prayer. We, we have this prayer right there in in lesson six of the pursuit, but I'm going to read it to you now. And if, if you're at that place, I encourage you to pray a prayer just like this. And it's, there's nothing magical about this prayer. It's just more, it's more about putting into words what's going on in your heart on the inside. Pray something like this. Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I know that you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead so that I could have life. I'm turning from my sin now, and I'm turning to you in faith. I trust in you alone to forgive my sin and give me new life. Thank you for this free gift. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, or for some of you, maybe for the first time in a long time, I just encourage you, check out that series, pursuegod.org forward slash go. It's called The Pursuit. And find another believer in your life, some, you know, someone that you know loves Jesus, and say, would you go through this series with me? Would you help me to process what it really means to be a true follower of Jesus, because this is what Jesus invites all of us to do. He's not going to force it. He's not going to make you follow him, but he's going to extend the invitation, and anyone that has ears to hear can come and pursue the God of the Bible by knowing who Jesus Christ is. Now, if you want more on this or the other lessons, if you've missed any of these lessons in our series on Mark, you can find all of that at pursuegod.org forward slash Mark, and don't forget to join us next time as we continue to go through this incredible gospel. Hey listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.